Welcome to the Sounds of Sand podcast, and our final episode of the year. Today, we present an anthology episode calling Poetry, Song, Talks, and Conversations from this podcast, as well as science and non-duality conferences and events from the past decade. My name is Michael Riley, and I'm the producer and co-host of the Sounds of Sand podcast. We want to thank you for listening and going on this journey with us in this year. And before we begin today's episode, I wanted to talk a bit about how this podcast is produced and how you can support. The production costs of the show are solely supported by our SAN members. In addition to supporting the mission of science and non-duality, SAN members can gain access to the entire library of recorded live sand events, community gatherings, films, and interviews. It's a collection of over 1,000 recordings available for you to continue to learn, share, expand, and connect. Your support means everything to us. It empowers us to create new programs, films, events, and this podcast. So please head over to scienceandnonduality.com slash join or find the link in the show notes about our monthly and annual memberships. And tonight we welcome you to an episode entitled Silent Light. This episode invites you to explore the profound season of silence as we approach the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. And as the world around us quiets down and a blanket of stillness descends, we find ourselves at the heart of an ancient cultural and spiritual celebration, the winter solstice. People throughout time have revered this moment of deep winter for its mystical powers of regrowth, healing, and hope that it's always darkest before the light returns. And indeed, many ancient civilizations noticed that the days were getting longer in the days just after the winter solstice. They celebrated the coming of longer days and the return of the sun in ancient Greece and Rome, in pagan religions, and even the birth of Jesus in Christian religions, all occurring in late December. And in these days, with the polycrisis of environmental collapse, cultural fragmentation, economic inequality, and the brutal violence of wars in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and the Sudan, we are all entangled in this dark blanket of shared grief. In the season of contrasts, darkness and light coexist in a delicate dance. Tonight, we'll explore the mystical threads that connect us in our quietude and luminosity on the sacred and dark time. We'll hear from sand speakers like Maya Luna, Lama Rod Owens, Pamela Wilson, Gabor Mate, Adia Shanti, Mirabai Starr, Fred Lamont, and Michael Mead, who will touch into themes of the dark night of the soul, silence, and a prayer for light to return to our collective consciousness. So please join me in settling in as we take this sonic journey 
in the season of silence. And if you're listening in the southern part of the world where the long days of summer are now expanding, I hope this episode finds you when deep winter arrives in June. So thank you for listening and being the shared light of awareness. First, we connect with writer and longtime friend of Sand, Joan Tollefson. And we found this beautiful short essay on Joan's Substack entitled, Right Now, Just As It Is, which we recommend subscribing to for its exquisite essays like the following, which you'll receive in your inbox every week. And this piece by Joan is entitled, The Dark Light. It is the darkest time of year in the Northern Hemisphere. It feels like winter now in Southern Oregon. It's been raining down here in the valley and there is snow on the mountains. Before long, it will be snowing down here as well. A thin skin of ice has formed on the pond. The trees are mostly bare and there is that wonderful mulchy smell in the air from wet leaves on the ground. In a few weeks, the light will start to return, but right now the days are short and often dark. There is immense darkness in the world as well. So many beings are suffering in countless ways. And at the same time, there are astonishing acts of kindness and generosity going on worldwide. The light and the dark go together. They cannot be pulled apart. We cannot have one without the other. Some traditions even speak of a dark light or the dazzling darkness. In the face of human cruelty, it's easy to fall into hatred and rage, bitterness and despair, shame and blame. It's easy to meet hate with hate, anger with anger, insult with insult, and to seek retribution and payback. We all know this habitual chain reaction from our own lives and from the world at large. This reaction rooted in fear, self-defense, and the attempt to be in control. It's not easy to break that chain. It requires a letting go, a surrendering, an opening of the heart, a dissolving of the thought sense of separation, a relaxing of the instinctual protective contraction, a risk-taking, a leap into the unknown, and we cannot say exactly how that happens. It rarely, if ever, happens once and for all or forever after. It only happens now, and sometimes it doesn't happen because we are all conditioned human beings, evolving from apes, still learning how to live with our complex brains and our capacities to get ourselves into troubles no other animal can. Opening in this way requires both the aspiration to leap and forgiveness for all the times when we and others and the world fall short. As I see it, this pathless path of waking up now is about finding the radiance and the love at the heart of this one bottomless moment. That doesn't mean adopting some facile feel-good belief to buffer us from pain. It comes not from closing down and turning away, but from opening and including. It calls not for toughening, but for sensitivity, intimacy, and openness of mind, body, heart. It is a direct, present moment experiential realization, a making real, here and now, 
of this bright light at the core of our being. It is about living from that light to the best of our ability, bringing love to those wounded places inside and outside where it is most needed. Writing and reading or speaking and listening go together. It's a relational act. I'm deeply grateful for all of you who read my writing or who are listening to this now. The words aren't really mine, of course. Like all writing, it comes from that dark light or infinite potential from which everything comes and to which it all returns. We are all waking up together as one whole being, and we all need one another. We all need love and encouragement and reminders about what really matters. We're all doing the best we can and the only possible in each moment. We all contain the light and the dark. This is true of you and me. It's true of Hamas and Israel. It's true of Putin and Zelensky. It's true of Biden and Trump. It's true of all beings. Love is what transforms, not hate. Love doesn't mean agreement or passivity, but love acts in a very different way from fear and hate. We all know this. May we honor the light in each of us as we find our way together through the radiant darkness. Love and blessings to all. And from the sand stage, here's Pamela Wilson on silence and the substratum. Say it's not in the words. It's in the space between the words. He used to invite us to relax into the space between the words. What's so lovely about the original language of silence and stillness is that there's never any quibbling. There's never any misunderstandings. There's never a better way. So here we are in these remarkable human forms lately. One friend who's coming here says, we are 90% bacteria and 10% human, but evidently the bacteria also loves stillness. Because <laughs> otherwise we wouldn't be here. It seems like it has the majority vote. So one of my great pleasures, though I delight in movement and in color and distinction and in phenomena and the display and celebration of life, is I also love the unmoving. I love the substratum. And that's too small a word for that which supports everything, carries everything, animates everything in a wonderfully unmoving way. So each one of us is this substratum. Each one of us is the unmoving. Otherwise we couldn't be aware of movement. Each one of us is already silence, embodied silence and stillness. Otherwise, we couldn't be aware of sound. Mm. 
So we attribute these mm, talents and capacities to the senses, but those just amplify what is. So silence, aware of sound, the unmoving, aware of movement, that which is neither human nor divine, aware of those. And that which is neither awake nor asleep, aware of naturalness, an unconditioned naturalness. Continuing with our theme of silence, we present a conversation between Dr. Gabor Mate and Adi Ashanti, recorded live at Sand Event, in which they discuss silence and stillness in a spiritual context. Yeah, so you talked about quiet, and um, I, I'd like to... Um, read you some this is, this is going to be the last question before we get into the uh, spiritual bypass part revelation and insight come from, no, come from somewhere else uh, from, from, from some other space they come from a place that we as a culture seem to have so little respect for a place called silence what's more neglected in our lives than silence you say and that reminded me of a great line from uh, from uh, the play Joan of Arc, Saint Joan by um, George Bernard Shaw, mm-hmm. where um, uh, Joan is this, it's, it's a 15th century story, of course, a true story. Um, and Joan is this um, simple peasant girl who, um, who has voices come to her. Yeah. And those voices guide her to go to the Dauphin, the, the king-to-be of France and demand that he assume his full role as a leader of his people. Mm-hmm. And Joan actually is able to lead the French armies to some victories against the occupying English. Yeah. So um, it's in, in this particular uh, dialogue, Charles, the, who is now king, mm-hmm. as a result of Joan's uh, leadership, mm-hmm. says, oh, your voices, your voices, why don't the voices come to me? I'm king, not you. <laughs> and Joan says, they do come to you, but you do not hear them. You have not sat in the field in the evening listening for them. Mm-hmm. When the Angelus, which is the ring, uh, uh, the bell that calls the so people to a particular prayer, when the Angelus rings, you crossed, your, you crossed yourself and have done with it. But if you prayed from your heart and listened to the thrilling of the bells in the air after they stop ringing, you would hear the voices as well as I do. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. So talk to us about silence. <laughs> <laughs> I like your sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's, it's obvious that we don't value it, silence as a culture that much. Silence seems on the surface to be so useless. Like, it's silent, okay. As I've had few people say to me, like, okay, it's silent, it's a big deal. What's, what's the big thing about that? And I go, yeah, you got a point. I can understand that surface experience. But silent, silence is, 
And again, silence isn't something that we need to, the more we're trying to be silent, the more we create conflict. Mm. Rather than trying to do that, as I like to say, is just listen to the quiet spaces inside. Instead of fighting with the noisy spaces, there's, you can work on the noisy spaces at, in some other time or some other context, but listen to the quiet spaces inside. And the, the thing about silence is that it's, it gives us access to, to dip underneath the sort of rational, <laughs> which is often irrational, but the rational intellect, mm-hmm. right? We're all the... It's all the, all, so much of the noise of happiness. Silence is a sort of an access gainer. That's why almost any contemplative form of spirituality value, has valued silence, right? If silence isn't the only thing worth valuing spirituality, you know, questioning and, um, and having, challenging our own assumptions, that's really important too. But unless there's a foundation of, of silence, it's so easy for it to just become stay in the realm of the, of the rational intellect, you know? And especially nowadays when we can go on the internet and, and watch endless amounts of spiritual teaching, and part of that's nice, that it's, there's availability and accessibility. But it's a part of it. Remember when I was young with my teacher in my 20s, and I loved reading about spirituality, and I mean, I was just sort of on fire with the whole thing, and I made a deal with myself that I was gonna, I could read as much as I wanted, as long as I meditated as much as I read every day. Wow. And so, because I was like, well, I can sit here and reading about silence is really exciting. <laughs> Perhaps actually engaging in it is, is at least as useful. And so I did that. And um, it's no mystery that, you know, people go for walks in the woods or just places where you're just sort of often caught off guard a little bit by a silence and the, the uh, sense of presence. You walk into a place of sort of sacred architecture. It's meant to evoke a state of being. Sometimes it's awe, sometimes it's simplicity, but there's always a kind of silence that's, that's with that. So I think silence is... Um, and the, the, the ground of our of our being is, is in silence. That's why you don't have to create silence. You know, we have to create the noise, like the words I'm saying. So I'm just thinking that before the Big Bang, there must have been silence. Mm-hmm. It, and it's kind of like, silence is kind of like, you know, the, like the Buddhist word that people get so confused over, like a word like emptiness. You know, yeah. and we think, oh, it's just like an empty box. But emptiness is... You know, this, this isn't the exact sort of Buddhist translation of this, but something akin to, like, since you mentioned, like, Big Bang, something akin to what there might have been right before the Big Bang, yeah. that everything came out of an infinitely small something, which is really close to saying a nothing. And that's a different kind of nothing. That's, that's a domain of what I call pure potentiality, right? And in our, I think in our deepest ground of being and our deepest experience of being, we, we experience ourselves to be a, a domain of pure potentiality. You know, there's, there's nothing to it. That, it's like before it's become anything. Um, 
And that's kind of akin also, it's a close cousin to silence. Right? Those, and so there's incredible mm. intelligence, revelatory power. It's, silence isn't just the lack of sound. There's, it seems like that at first. It seems like that at first, but it's, it's, it's a door opener. And next, we present Lama Rod Owens from a recent episode of the Sounds of Sand podcast in which he reads a prayer for light from his new book, The New Saints. And this is a prayer for light. I am praying for light today. When I say that I am praying for the light, what I mean is that I am deciding to become the light. I also accept that there is darkness in the world. I understand that the darkness I see in the world is also the darkness I see in myself. There is no darkness in the world that does not also abide in some form in me. When I acknowledge the dark, I am also acknowledging that I cannot know the blessing of light without first naming the darkness. Therefore, while I pray for and love the light, I will also love the darkness because whatever I choose to authentically love, I allow it to be free. I choose to let my darkness be free so it can stand next to the light. When they are standing together, they will tell the true story of my life. And in that truth telling, I will accept both the light and the dark and know that the dark is only a place where the light has not learned to live. As I decide to become light, I am also praying that I develop the courage to learn to live in the dark places. Now we present a live talk from a science and non-duality conference from several years ago. And it's Vera de Chalambert talking about the divine feminine and holy darkness. So if I don't remember what this talk is about, it's about the importance of darkness and crisis and difficulty in the spiritual process. We hear a lot about enlightenment here at this conference. and I don't know very much about enlightenment at all. Um, what I know of the divine uh, has more to do with heartbreak and yearning and um, sometimes confusion. But I would like to speak about uh, endarkenment and the power of that and the teachings that we can learn from um, darkness in the form of the dark feminine that we can find in uh, all of the world's great wisdom lineages. I wanted to start uh, the way Alan Watts always started his talks on Kali. And he started with a story that said that an astronaut went up all the way far, far into space to meet God. And he comes back and everyone says, alors so? And he says, she's black. <laughs> and referring supposedly to, to, the, to the darkness of space, the womb-like darkness of space, which, which is evidently feminine. And actually, darkness and the feminine have a really deep relationship. 
I mean, we think of feminine as maybe light and, 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 and loving, and it is. But the full feminine is the dark feminine. It has this receptive quality of darkness, right? Which takes everything in, which holds everything in space. And it, it, I, I believe in our, in our psychological lives, in our spiritual lives, uh, the womb, the womb is dark. And we're conceived in, the, in this darkness, in this protective, holy space of the womb. And the yoni, it's, it's dark. And the ways in which we make love include all these dark, messy, mushy places. You know, we have to go into the darkness to become intimate with each other. And the earth, the earth is also dark, right? And in order for anything to grow, it has to be planted into darkness. And the seed which is planted into darkness has to kind of turn inside out, fall completely apart. It's not a lovely process. It's a messy fucking process. And, and, and if you don't know what's going to happen, you're probably going to be certain that the seed has just perished, right? Because it fall, fell apart and got destroyed. But really, it is only being planted so that the transfiguration can happen and life could grow. And so this feminine quality of darkness, which, um, which, is, which we see in um, the world's great, wiz great lineages, seems to be this kind of initiatory power into the spiritual life. It's the quality that initiates and, um, and transfigures the soul. So I uh, wanted to start actually with a story from the, from the Buddhist tradition. And incredibly, the Buddha, after having gone through all of the, all of the initiatic processes that it takes to become, become um, enlightened, is on the brink of awakening and then encounters his dark night of the soul. So he, is, he has now achieved enlightenment and has now to take his seat of awakening under the Bodhi tree and then the demon Mara, this great demon appears and I mean we can speak about demons or we can speak about the integrated parts of ourselves, right? So this, this demon Mara appears and he first tries to seduce Buddha with his like sexy daughters the Buddha says thanks, but no thanks. And then a great army of demons he reproduces. He can reproduce. He produces a great army of demons. And he says, Buddha, you are not the first to be awakened. I, I have done all the spiritual practices. I will take the seat under the body tree. And I have an entire army to affirm my awakening. And in the Buddhist tradition, it is very important that someone affirms our awakening. And so the entire army of demons roar, yes, Mara, we affirm your awakening. And Mara says, and you, Buddha, who do you have to speak for you? And Buddha looks around, and evidently there's no one to speak for him because there's only him. And so he reaches down and he touches the earth the dark earth, and the earth herself roars, I bear witness to your awakening. 
And with that statement, the army of demons disappears and the Buddha takes his seat under the Bodhi tree. And I love that so much because what we have here is this, this kind of teaching about not only, we're so obsessed with transcendence, right? But, but this teaching is not only about the importance of the journey up towards the transcendent, but also the journey down, down into like the mud, the mush, the earth, embodiment, right? It's about embodying the insights that we have received in our, in our awakening um, journey. And I really love that. And so the dark night of the soul is, is a you is, um, or, or the, it's called the dark night of the soul in the Christian tradition, but it is a universal concept which speaks about the importance of spiritual maturation, which cannot happen without crisis, which cannot happen without um, difficulty. And um, in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tradition, there is this really interesting story. So first of all, you know, Jews go into the desert, which is also a kind of a holding place. And in the desert, they encounter the divine. But how does the divine appear to them? The divine sort of leads the Jewish people during the nighttime covered in a pillar of fire and in the daytime in a cloud, in a dark cloud. And in order to communicate with the divine, what one must do is enter the dark cloud where the intimacy with the divine can unfold. And so there's the story of Moses first encountering the dark cloud. It was approaching the people and everyone moved back. And Moses was the only one who was able to move into it. And, uh, and that's part of what signified or, or was a sign of his spiritual leadership. Um, so there's this very cool moment in the Torah where the Jews just worshiped the golden calf and Moses was very angry and he smashed the, the tablets of the Ten Commandments and, and you know, there's the, you know, you can think of that as like the great separation happened. He goes back up to God and he was like, listen, God, I have done everything you have, you have told me to do and yet I don't even know what it is and the people are not listening to me. I want to know you. I want to know you. I want to know what I'm speaking about. He, you know, there was this, this beautiful sense of longing for connection and intimacy with, with, um, with God after this really difficult experience that he just lived through. And a really cool thing happens. God answers Moses because God is always in the cloud and Moses says, I wanna know your true face. And um, God says, okay, but you cannot see me and live. So he puts Moses into a cleft in the rock, so like a cave. And then in the Torah it says, God covers Moses with her hand. And so, Moses goes into like a holding environment, like a dark place. And then God, the closest God can get to Moses, passes before this dark place. And Moses is allowed to peek through God's fingers and see God's backside, like God's to us, you know. Um, and there, it's beautiful because on one hand, God is saying, you can't see me all at once. You can't behold my glory, my light, because, because there's something else that needs to happen. You, your ego will be annihilated, and there's this way in which God is 
doesn't want that to happen all at once. God is protecting the individuality of Moses and God is giving a kind of a model for the dark night. You wanna know me? You wanna know what the divine is? You have to go into a cave. You have to go into the dark. And we see this kind of similar story in the Kabbalistic tradition. So in the Kabbalistic tradition, it is said that God creates the world twice. Because the first time that God creates the world, God is so excited that God pours all of her light, all of God's light into the world. And the vessels that God creates to hold this light can't tolerate it and shatter. And so the first world shatters. And then something amazing happened. It happens and God goes into the dark night of the soul. And what literally uh, is spoken about in the Kabbalistic literature is that the process of tzimtzum or withdrawal happens. God withdraws God's self from God's center and creates this kind of a womb environment, this holy darkness, this space in which then God creates the second world, the second creation in which darkness plays a much more um, important role. And um, so, he, and that aspect, so this is the interesting part is that what remains then in the world is said to be the divine feminine. So God in God's transcendence withdraws away but there is an aspect of the divine, the feminine aspect that we call the Shekhinah, which literally means the indwelling in the Jewish tradition. And that aspect of God remains. That aspect of God is said to have chosen to remain in exile with her children. I love that and I feel separation like all the time. Um, and, and a lot of like yearning for something more than that. But what helps me so often is to remember that. To remember that anywhere I feel separate, anywhere I feel in exile, that God is necessarily there. That's the function of the divine feminine. That she doesn't abandon her children. She doesn't turn away. She has no orphans. The divine feminine has no orphans. Next we hear from Fred Lamont reading poetry piece entitled From Word to Silence, recorded live online at the Wisdom in Time of Crisis Summit in 2020. The liminal space. We're in a liminal space, and this is a good time to share this, to choose, not to be sentenced to stay home, but to choose to spend some time in this liminal space between poetry and silence, the space between uh, poetry reading and guided meditation. So consider these poems to be guided meditations and ways to honor your breath, a little breath book, because you know your breath is the goddess in your body. So you can close your eyes and use this as a meditation time. Now just as your flesh has a soul, so your inhalation is a sheath 
containing a sword of sweet fire. Awaken the angel in every breath. Plunge this blade into your heart. You are here to die of love. As you fall asleep tonight, do not take this inhalation for granted. Honor her like a royal guest. Make a spacious tent of your flesh, for she who contains the galaxies has come to dwell in you, pouring her gift from the stars down your backbone. Each expiration will lead you through a silver door, a mirror of moonlight. The key is silence. Step through. Follow her rainbow into the void where wings of astonishment will carry you from death to death. A scent of blossoms from the garden in your body will guide you home enlarged by a memory of stillness. Neither come nor go. Just let her lead you from the mind to the heart. When you meditate, Stop all this reaching for the sun. Bodies of joy don't fly. They are weighted down with jewels of emptiness, pearls of compassion. Gravity is the prayer of the fallen who rise through surrender, sinking deeper than the ripples where small fish feed and thoughts nibble your toes. I mean to say, you must drown in groundless silence swelling with waves of solitude, all names swallowed up in the ocean of unknowing. Don't count your breaths. Here, one inhalation lasts forever. One sigh brings you on. When you emerge from these waters, dripping starlight, waders on the shore will whisper, who is that glistening leviathan of unalloyed night? Then you must sing to them about the treasures of the deep. Uh, this is not a poem, just a murmur whose poor thoughts won't reach the edge of the page. The Bible's word for spirit is breath. The Quran's word for spirit is breath. So it is in all the tongues of wisdom, for wisdom is Sophia, 
the soul in your breath. When you are awake, this very inhalation is the Holy Spirit sigh of the Creator in creation. She is the goddess who birthed the sun when she danced in the beginning with a deep green shadow. And though her womb enfolds the clustered galaxies, she whirls inside your body, weaving awareness into flesh. Call her the dignity of what flows through you when you do not try. Call her the delight of Ruh, the Shakti, the Chi. Honor her by listening. Tend her flame in your lungs and you will permeate the earth like fragrance in a garden. You will become her whisper, Tov, Shiv, Bishmillah. Friend, please swim in the river of amazement that pours down your dark hollow places like wine saved for the end of the wedding. How do I know this? I am breathed by the beloved. All day long, the mind hears the twitter of the world. If you pay attention to the mind, you become what it hears. All day long the heart hears, listening itself. If you pay attention to the heart, you become the sky, empty and translucent. Deep inside you the crescent moon, the evening star. Once you called it hopelessness, now ineffable beauty. All will be well. Your silence is the womb of fearless singing. You feel a place in the fern forest where a doe is giving birth. Bones move under fur like an ancient loom. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Our next segment comes from a podcast episode recorded earlier this year with writer and spiritual teacher Mirabai Starr, where I ask her about the dark night of the soul of her recent book. And she shares a very intimate story from her own life and her own dark night of the soul. I wanted to ask about St. John of the Cross in your most recent book about the dark night of the soul um, and to maybe illuminate people, not to be uh, ironic, illuminate people about <laughs> darkness and the dark night of the soul. That That's perfect because I call the book Luminous Darkness and mm. St. John of the Cross definitely got the joke about mm. 
the darkness that is actually unutterable blinding radiance and how our path of maturing as spiritual beings is one of becoming accustomed to the the direct perception of light you know that's what it we talked about a mystical experience is one of direct encounter with the sacred and john of the cross describes that naked and intimate encounter as being one of of radiant light that we're not yet used to our our spiritual eyes haven't grown accustomed to perceive the light directly and so we experience it as darkness at first so it's perfect. Um, yeah, so I I encountered John of the Cross when I was 20, and I was doing a semester abroad in Spain studying Spanish literature. And John of the Cross is the patron saint of poetry and the the most beloved saint of, of Spain. And he wrote most of his poetry, composed a lot of his poetry while imprisoned by his Carmelite brethren for his efforts to support Teresa of Avila in her reform movement of the of the Carmelite order, really of the of the Catholic Church, and return return to its original contemplative roots of silent silent prayer and mm. interior spiritual experience because they they felt that the church had completely drifted away from those mystical spiritual roots of of direct inner experience of god right so he was he was young he was 25 when he met teresa of avila who was 56 at the time and um no sorry she was 52 and they together she she recruited him to help her in this reform movement and he was punished by the mainstream carmelites and thrown into prison for 9 months and during that time as you can imagine he plummeted into the depths of despair and it was a tiny he was in a tiny little room it had been a latrine before so it was this fetid dank room that wasn't even big enough for him to lie down in had very tall walls with a with a window at the very top through which he eventually after nine months kind of miraculously escaped but during that time he it was like being it was like jonah in the belly of the great fish he just sort of disintegrated and the way he kept himself sane was by composing poetry in his mind and committing it to memory and so much of his body of work, the gorgeous um, co- collection of mystical poems, which are many of which are kind of erotic love poems that never mention the word God or Jesus <clears throat> or Christ. These all came out of this abject suffering and this radical unknowing because in the depths of of his deepest darkness in that cell, he could not know even if God was real and if, let alone if he was loved. In fact, he was told by the monks who would whisper through the the bars of his, or the, the door um, of his cell that Teresa of Avila had completely given up on him and forgotten him. And meanwhile, she was madly doing everything she could to, to get him 
um, released, including appealing to the King of Spain, but he didn't know that. At one point they told him, in fact, that she was dead and he had been completely forgotten. So he was tortured. Oh, and they would take him out once a day and flog him uh, while the monks were eating their noonday meal. So, and he ultimately died um, 20 years, 30 years later of a recurring infection from the, the lacerations that he suffered during that time. So this talk about suffering. Um, and so when I encountered John of the Cross, it was as a poet. And I, at that time, I was already a Sufi. I had become a Sufi in around the age of 16. And I had encountered Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, the great, the great Persian mystic, um, 13th century, who I have a feeling John of the Cross knew about because Spain in the 16th century was still very much steeped in the the convivencia, the, the confluence of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam that unfolded in Spain for, I don't know, 700 years before um, Ferdinand and Isabella made Catholicism this, the state religion and expelled all, all Jews and Muslims. And so I recognized that kind of Sufi heart, that heart of John of the Cross that was on fire with love for God. It reminded me so much of Rumi and I resonated. And so later, many years later, I was teaching philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico, teaching Dark Night of the Soul, which was my favorite text of John of the Cross in, in translation, a translation done in the 1930s by a Catholic priest. And my students were just bored to death. And a colleague said, why don't you translate it, Mirabai? You love language, you're fluent in Spanish, mm -hmm. um, you love this text. And, and so I, I did. And that started me on a path, not only of deep love and friendship with John of the Cross, who was the ultimate non-dual teacher in many ways, because his teaching was so much about merging into that which we love, you know, be loving so, so completely that all distinctions dissolve between lover and beloved. So John of the Cross understood that we could only know by unknowing. And that really spoke to me. Somehow I, from early on, like my early teens even, or mid-teens say, when I started my Buddhist meditation practice and got to know the nature of the mind, or at least my mind, um, there was something in me that I always understood that any concepts that I might come up with about ultimate reality would be limitations, would be somehow false. And so people think of the dark night of the soul, that phrase, as, as only referring to having a difficult time, you know, painful experience. But for John of the Cross, it was really about um, deconstructing our spiritual and religious concepts are actually, really, it was about God doing it for us, mm -hmm. taking away our spiritual attachments, actually, the way we think it's supposed to feel to have a religious experience, blissful, for instance. Yeah. So to peel away these attachments to spiritual feelings and spiritual concepts so that we're able to have a direct and naked encounter with reality. And so I translated this book 
I, it was very intense. It's a very um, rigorous teaching and his language is, is difficult in some ways. His prosaic language, you know, it was, he wrote the, the poem Dark Night of the Soul and then, and then the nuns that he was a confessor for, a spiritual director of, asked him to elucidate the poem in ways that they could understand it as a metaphor for the spiritual journey. So he wrote this 200 page prose treatise that is one of the most powerful and precise spiritual teachings I've ever encountered. So I translated it and the day that that book came out, that was the publication day, my 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident. And in that moment, I was plunged into that which I had been translating and, and also writing about in this book, Dark Night of the Soul, in the sense that I knew nothing. I could feel nothing except the fire of unbearable anguish. Mm. And it stripped me, that experience of losing Jenny, of everything, of everything. And lo and behold, that stripped down state, when I allowed myself with great courage and tenderness to be present to the fire of my anguish, became a kind of portal to an intimacy with the sacred that I had never really experienced before. This was the luminous darkness that John of the Cross evokes in his poetry especially. Now, would I trade that for another minute to have my daughter in my arms and tell her I love her? Yes, a thousand times I have said yes. No spiritual realization or even ultimately a, a renewed capacity for an almost childlike wonder that entered my life through that broken open space would be worth the loss of my child. However, this is what is. Mm -hmm. I have lost her, she's not going to undie. Mm -hmm. And her death has granted me access to deeper compassion, yes, and also to I don't know, an enlarged capacity for love and connection. Next we hear from poet Maya Luna. Welcome to She Who Births From Darkness. This first poem is called Inanna. The journey into the underworld is not meant to be known or understood. That is, in fact, what makes it the underworld. The journey into the underworld is not meant to be controlled. You aren't supposed to know what the resurrection will look like. You are right where you are supposed to be. So don't be so quick to speed up into plotting what comes next. 
your claiming silences the voice of holy silence. Pause. Respect the unknown. Get down on your knees. The shedding has just begun. You aren't supposed to know how to do this. That is part of the medicine. You don't work the underworld. The underworld works you. As excruciating as it is to not scratch that itch of control, to not puff yourself up and charge bravely forward into planting new flags of knowing, don't be so quick. Let the pulse become slow. There is a new space available here, a new choice available to lay down, listen, and receive. Grief, too, cannot be skipped. Fear cannot be smoothed over. You may want this flower to bloom now when the wilt of pregnant seeds have only just begun to drop. So drop, follow the current, gather and let wisdom be sung into your bones. Can you trust this space as much as you trust your own reaching? The alchemy of the underworld has only just begun. Your sacrifices are only getting started. Offer them up with an awake heart. Feel the ache of attachment feeding prayer into their dying. These offerings are sacred not simply mere inconveniences, but portals into the immaculate, untouched seed of your soul. Your tears of sacrifice are a baptism. Let the ache of your attachments reveal the secret altar of love underneath in the deep. You don't know how to do this. You can't. You aren't supposed to know how to do this. That is part of the design. Your temptation to reach up and out and away and grab the reins and steer. Yes, this is part of it too. But the underworld does not like to be named. She does not respond kindly to the attempts to colonize her. You cannot look at her directly. She approaches from stage left by surprise. You may find comfort in imagining your victorious conquering, but conquer you will not. 
It's not how the medicine is served. The best physician now is on your knees, which Rumi said was the shape of the doorway to God. Some part of you has grown tired of standing tall. Anoint this sacred part of you. You are going to get naked and she has only taken off the first veil. Next we hear from Amoda Ma, live at a science and non-duality conference. One of the greatest obstacles to the embodiment of awakening, in other words, the full filtering into our everyday lives of the realization of awakening, of awakeness, one of the greatest obstacles to that is this idea this idea that suffering comes to a complete end. It's an idea that is very prevalent in traditional spiritual teachings that tend to focus on the transcendent, clear light of awareness and also has filtered into many non-dual, modern day non-dual teachings, where suffering is seen to be an illusion. I once had somebody storm out of one of my retreats, almost shouting, suffering is an illusion. because I had invited the possibility that the darkest places in our inner experience are doorways to liberation. And without the honest examination of that in one's own experience, then awakeness cannot be fully integrated into the human experience. And this is perhaps true, and I say this from a place of having spoken to many people in many different cultures, in many different uh, settings, from many different backgrounds, and from many levels of experience, if you like, on, on the spiritual path. It comes up over and over again in lots of different uh, uh, guises either prior to awakening or post-awakening. Either way, it's the same obstacle. The idea prior to awakening, that awakening will take away all pain, will take away all suffering, that we will live in some kind of unfeeling state Perhaps you could call that bliss, but it sounds like numbness to me. Is a big illusion itself and perpetuates the full flowering of awakeness 
It's the expectation that gets in the way. As long as we expect awakening to be a particular way or to bring a particular state or to make our lives conform to how we wish them to be in order to take away any discomfort or challenge or pain or suffering that is currently being experienced. That very expectation is what stands in the way of the full bud of awakening bursting through and having the opportunity to authentically integrate into everyday life. So that's a kind of clue, is the expectation, the agenda. Post-awakening, post-realization, when we've awakened out of the dream of separation, there can also be a hindrance in that any dark knots of energetic contraction that continue to appear, any challenging feelings, any pain, any physical pain, any emotional pain, If these still appear and continue to be experienced, there can be a subtle avoiding. And that avoidance creates a, an inner division or perpetuates an inner division, which means that we have not totally woken up out of the dream of separation. Inner division means that something is avoided, something is denied. There is still a subtle separation between the awake state and the often still turbulent experience of living as a human being. It sounds in some ways simple, and you've probably heard some of this before, spiritual bypassing and all this, but to authentically examine in oneself where those vestiges of separation still play themselves out, where there is still a holding on to some pristine state of awakeness, requires a, a, a real ruthless turning in and self-exposure, an honesty that is often quite painful. Because it's very likely that even after awakeness has been realized, that the human journey still continues. That certain, perhaps traumas, or let's call them energies, coalesced energies, areas that we have not pre previously met, continue to appear not because there's something wrong, but because they're an invitation to an even deeper embodiment of awakeness. Every dark knot, every difficult feeling, everything that we may call suffering is the opportunity to sit inside it to be crucified and resurrected.
It's the invitation for a deep intimacy that is often overlooked with everything that appears as part of the human experience. Human experience is wavy. It comes in waves. It goes up and down, in and out, dark and light. Everything is included in that. the opportunity for every vestige of inner darkness that remains, of inner division, of everything that has been denied, to be welcomed into the clear light of awareness, into the openness, into the vulnerability, into the tenderness and deep intimacy with each moment as it arises. That's not to say that the story of suffering continues. The victim is no longer there. But what we may call suffering, as the exquisite agony of meeting pain as it arises, whether that be physical pain, the pain of loss, the pain of heartbreak, the pain of failure, may still arise. And in the meeting of that, in the awake space, it doesn't stick. It pierces the heart all the way. It breaks the heart open. It's exquisite. It's bittersweet but it doesn't remain as a story of being a victim. It doesn't remain because it's been denied and tucked into the shadows. It doesn't remain to play itself out again. It's as if that, that particular karma is totally released. It totally dissolves. And that's a purification that happens if we're willing to meet everything. Neem Karoli Baba said, I love suffering. It brings me closer to God. Suffering is a doorway. It's not the end. It's a means to an end. It's the doorway. It's a doorway to the kind of joy that is like a bubbling brook behind everything, beneath everything. A joy that has nothing to do with being happy or being sad. A joy that has nothing to do with things going your way. A joy that has nothing to do with what it looks like or feels like in your imagination to be spiritual or to be awakened. Everything is included. Everything is embraced. And the grace of it is that the external world is 
likely to mirror that internal non-attachment, non-craving, non-aversion. It mirrors it by not recreating the trauma. By not recreating a story of poor me. There's no self invested in the circumstances that appear. Whether those circumstances are good or bad, there is no inner division in that. In fact, everything is seen as good. Even the most challenging experience contains the seed of light. That's how we evolve and grow out of the immaturity of believing that awakening, awakening or being spiritual should look like any particular fantasy we have around that. As we have the courage to do this, then everything comes rushing forwards. Everything. Everything in our own personal history. Everything perhaps from our karmic history. Everything comes rushing in because everything yearns to be met. Everything yearns to resolve itself in love. That love being the open space of acceptance, of allowing, of staying resolutely present and unconditionally open every nuance of your inner experience. In that way, awakeness can filter into every aspect of your life, every interaction, every experience, every relationship. in the deepest intimacy of your own experience. That's the place. That's the place where a radical self-exposure is called for, an honesty to simply see
where there is any avoidance, any turning away from, any strategy or manoeuvre to escape. What is being offered here in this moment and each moment. In that way, suffering becomes the doorway to grace. Suffering is no longer an entrapment, are no longer an, a limitation, neither something to be clung to as a story of drama or trauma, but not to be avoided, not to be denied, not to be escaped from. In that way, the divided mind, the mind that divides its experience into good and bad, right and wrong, should and shouldn't, awake and unawake, spiritual and unspiritual, the mind that divides, categorizes, every aspect of its experience is crucified It has no escape route. All strategies, all maneuvers, all contortions, all acrobatics come to a stop. It's not the suffering that stops. It's the mind's acrobatics that stop. And out of that crucifixion, you are resurrected. You are resurrected as the light which has no division in it. In that sense, you are liberated from any notion of suffering. You are liberated from any notion of awakening. You are liberated from any idea of being spiritual. Life is fully lived. And yet you do not find yourself in that. You are not invested in the circumstances of life, in the events of life, in the waves that rise and fall. In that sense, you live selflessly. To live selflessly is to have no expectation or agenda. to meet each moment in the openness of who you really are. 
And our final segment for today is with Michael Mead, the acclaimed storyteller, poet, and podcast host. And this is another live event from a sand conference in which Michael treats us to a musical storytelling performance. An unusual time to be alive. Rarely do people live in a time when culture is collapsing at the same time that nature is unraveling. A rare time to be alive. Although one thing about myth and uh, traditional people is most things have happened before, it just happens differently each time. So I want to tell a story that addresses uh, this kind of period that we find ourselves in. But the beautiful song made me think I really have to start with the song. This is a song from the Dagara tribe, Burkina Faso. This is the song they sing when they realize we need elders, that the world has gotten hard and we need the wisdom that elders that can, bri can bring. Of course, we need the dreams of youth and the energy and courage of youth, but the combination of youth and elders is what transforms culture. And so this is the song that they sing when they want to call the elder up. And of course, the elder or the sage can appear in anyone because it's an aspect of the heart and the soul and not an aspect of age. It goes like this. Azizona is a makuli Azizona the world has gone wrong. Is a makuli. Somebody take us home. Azizona, the realm has gone wrong. We're losing our fathers. We're losing our mothers. And by father and mother, they don't need our biological preceding people. What they mean is father means grandfather. Grandfather means sage. Mother means grandmother. Grandmother means wise old woman. We're losing the wisdom that people need to survive the hard times. And so, when it feels like the wisdom is no, no longer conscious or as present as it should be, people know that whatever is important that gets lost doesn't disappear from the world. It falls back into stories because story means storehouse. And what we have forgotten or not yet learned is waiting to be found again in the storehouse of stories. And this is an old story told by a number of tribes in what we call North America when things start to go wrong. Are you ready for a story? They say all people are looking for knowledge because it's natural for humans to seek knowledge. And they say that there's a place where the exact knowledge that everybody's looking for can be found, a cave, a cave in which knowledge is stored. And they say, even though it's nearby, and even though 
There are roads going in all directions, highways and super highways and back road trails. And even though people are driving north, south, east and west in cars day and night, they don't seem to find the cave where the knowledge resides that people are looking for. And they do say, should you find that cave, what you would see inside the cave is an old woman. And the old woman is in the cave and she's weaving and she's weaving the most beautiful garment that anyone has ever seen. And she's been weaving it for a long time. And she wants the hem of the garment to be particularly beautiful. And so she's weaving the hem of porcupine quills. And in order to prepare them to be woven into the hem of the garment, she has to bite down in order to flatten them. And she's been biting down on porcupine quills for so long she has worn her teeth down so that there's nothing left but nubs barely appeasing, appearing above the gums. But still, she keeps biting down on the quills and weaving them into the hem of the garment. And every once in a while, she has to go to the back of the cave. And at the back of the cave, there's a fire. And some people say that fire is the most ancient thing in the entire world. And over the fire, there's a cauldron. And in the cauldron, there are the seeds of all the flowers and all the bushes and all the plants and all the trees and everything that grows from the heart of the earth. And if she doesn't go back and stir the cauldron full of seeds and the seeds will burn. And if they burn, then we won't have plants and we won't have vegetables or flowers or trees. And so she gets up every once in a while, puts the garment on the floor of the cave and goes to the back of the cave towards the fire. And because she's old, and because she's been weaving that garment for so long, she moves slowly. And as she slowly goes to the back of the cave, the black dog, what black dog? The black dog goes over to where the garment is now laying on the floor of the cave. And the black dog sees a loose thread. And what can you do? It's a dog. It's a loose thread. The black dog takes the loose thread and begins to pull on it and keeps pulling until the entire garment has been unraveled. And so nothing is left but a chaotic mess of threads on the floor of the cave. And then the old woman comes back from stirring the stew of seeds. And when she comes back, she sees her long labor of love and creativity unraveled into chaos on the floor of the cave. And so she stops and looks at the chaos in front of her. We don't know how long she looks, long enough to consider that she has to do something. And so she sits down with the weaving again. And she sees a loose thread. And she picks up that loose thread. And as soon as she picks it up, she sees a vision of an even more beautiful garment than the one she had been weaving before. And she begins to weave that garment. And as she weaves it, she knows this is the most beautiful garment that anyone has ever seen. And the elders tell their story when everybody begins to worry that the world might come to an end. 
They tell the story when everything goes upside down. They tell this story when the wrong people get elected. They tell this story when everybody begins to fear the climate crisis. They tell this story when everyone realizes we're in this together and we're not sure how to get out of it. And some people say, damn that black dog. If it wasn't for the black dog, the old woman would finish the beautiful garment and everything would be perfect. And the elders say, be careful what you wish for. Perfect means to go through the form. Perfect means death, that all the forms are over. In this world, perfection never arrives. And those who seek it often wind up isolated and alone like that man who wanted to find the perfect woman. And every time he met a woman, he went, well, not tall enough, not smart enough, not beautiful enough. And finally he found the perfect woman. And she looked at him and it turned out she was looking for the perfect man. And she moved on and he was left alone. Don't seek for perfection. What we love in each other is the imperfection. That's why ancient people used to leave one part of a rug imperfect, one part of a clay pot unglazed. In this world, it's enough to be alive. It's enough to have a dream. It's enough to see a vision. And now we are like that old woman. We're sitting or standing there, looking at it all unraveling before our eyes. And in a sense, we have to be the witness of that kind of thing. If we don't look, we are turning away and not being in the world in a full and meaningful way. On the other hand, if all we do is look at the unraveling, we can find ourselves falling into overwhelm and despair. So what we have to do is like the old woman, pick up the thread that is in front of us. For it's called the thread of the soul, the thread of one's genius. And the idea when the world has gone wrong is not to try and save it through some kind of heroics. For instance, when someone wanting to gain power says, I'm the only one that can fix it. When you hear that, you vote for the other people. It's possible that heroicism is what got us into the mess to begin with. The old people say, just look for the thread of life which they used to call the thread of genius. And the Irish have a story, they say, when the center falls apart, as it inevitably does, what was in the center doesn't disappear, for in this world, meaningful things don't disappear. They just become harder to find. And the Irish people say, the ancient Irish anyway, they say when the center falls apart, then all those things that made up the center go to the edges and the margins of life. And they say, if you go looking for the darkest margin or the darkest place, if you go there, you will find a thread. It's the thread you were supposed to find. It's the thread that you can pull. And if everyone just picked up the thread of their own genius, the thread of their own being, and began to pull those threads back towards the center, then like the old woman, we would begin to see the beautiful garment of the world again. And all we would have to do was pull our own thread and weave all our threads together. That's what the ancient people say. Don't try to fix the whole thing. Don't try to solve it and don't expect that you will find the answer you're looking for in the light. 
If it was in the light, it already would have been found. When we're missing something, it's in the dark. And so the ancient people say, all light comes from darkness. All knowledge comes from standing at the edge of whatever we know. If we knew it, we couldn't get any more. We have to stand in the places we, where we no longer know, where we distinctly do not know. And then the answers come from unseen places. If only we have the courage to face the dark, whether it's the dark inside or the dark outside. That's what they say. And me, I'm sticking with the old stories because it's the old stories that continue to live, that have in them the wisdom that's missing and have in them the deep courage required to face the unknown. And it's the unknown that is holding the answers when we come to the edge of what we know. At least that's what the old people say. And me, I'm sticking with them. And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content, available exclusively to sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.